Welcome once again to Voice of Reason Radio, your hosts Chris Honholtz and Richard Story joining you on, well look, it's only been four days, but it's Friday the 16th, it's the 16th, not the creepy 13th number, so we're okay there, Friday the 16th, and now my watch wants to talk to me, stop Siri, I'm not talking to you, um, but it is the 16th of, I said March, didn't I, it's April, Rich, I can't <laughs> tell what month it is. This whole last year has so bamboozled me, I don't know what month I'm in. It's April 16th. <laughs> well, this year is clicking along at a pretty rapid pace. Yeah, it, well, it, you know, considering that last year uh, moved at a snail's pace, actually slower than a snail's pace, it was pretty much the longest decade of our life in one year, but uh, <laughs> we are moving much more quickly, and so it's hard to imagine we're already in April, halfway through the month. Uh, just celebrated my wife's birthday, and no, I'm not telling you how old she is, because that would get me killed. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I may not be a bright man, but I know you never ask. There are two things you never ask women about women about, and one of them is age. So, no. Uh, just say you know she's it's happy birthday, and she, you know yeah, she is a wonderful, loving, caring wife. And um, yeah, I probably never should have brought that up. I'm probably gonna sleep on the couch tonight for that. But, <laughs> but we just celebrated her birthday this week. Uh, so it's been a, it's been an interesting week. Uh, we were four days from our last recording. We did this on Monday. We were just uh, with you guys, as we said on that day. We did that because of the you know the crazy weather that Rich was dealing with uh, down there in Mississippi. And so now we're recording during our normal recording time, which is usually Friday or Saturday, whichever the Lord, whichever day the Lord opens up for us to record. And so we're doing it again this week. So you get a two for one. But uh, just want to thank you for joining us and being with us. Uh, you guys, wow, you responded amazingly to uh, the last program. We did get some nice comments uh, from some of you guys. And I think almost for us, as far as numbers go, and which we're not going to get into the actual numbers, but just how fast the downloads came for that particular program, uh, a lot of you guys seem to have uh, been you know, very interested in that topic and uh, we're, we're very gracious in some of the commentary that we got back. So thank you for that. Uh, also, as always, want to remind you, we are part of the Christian podcast community. Uh, we always encourage you to go check that pro, uh, show out. You'll always find a really good podcast on there with um, so many so many variety of subjects to cover. In fact, if you're into eschatology, Andrew on his uh, Apologetics Live program just this last Thursday, well, now I want to say last Thursday, but it was literally last night, uh, they were talking about um, eschatology. And they were having an online discussion about that. Uh, and obviously, uh, you know, from for the, the people on there, they were talking at it, don't get upset, uh, premillennial dispensationalism. They were, they were um, you know, in favor of that particular eschatological paradigm. But if you're someone who's interested, that's a good way, whether you agree with that dispensational view or not, you're learning from people who actually believe this. So rather than you know what we typically do, which is straw man each other, you can learn what they believe and what they actually hold to. Um, so that's you know that's why I say there's always a good show, a good program, a good podcast that you will find on the Christian podcast community. So go to that uh, you know the website. Just literally type in Christian podcast community in Google or DuckDuckGo if you don't want to be tracked by the uh, tech overlords, and uh, you'll find it. You'll go there, and you can go to our website slavetothekeng.com, and you can follow the links there that will take you to uh, the website as well. So we encourage you to do that. We uh, encourage you to you know. We really appreciate everybody that always listens to us, but we always want to promote 
good solid podcasts out there and a shout out to our brothers at just thinking who just dropped their uh podcast this week on activist theology you really need to listen to that i i I, it's a over three hour program i think if i remember correctly and they really get into a lot of good detail if you're paying attention to the and i know there can almost be a sense of overwhelmed because there's so much discussion about critical race theory social justice and all of that but their topic and how they covered it and the detail that they go into is always informative and if you want to listen to virgil like seriously get on a soapbox and go after somebody when he says give me a break listen to uh this program uh virgil thumbs up man you got passionate praise god i love it so encourage you to go check that out but uh thank you for being with us thank you for listening to the uh the this program and all the programs from christian podcast community we're always so grateful and what an amazing technological gift we have with this right now there may come a day when we can't be as open that we may have to go back to you know sending usb drives through the mail (laughs) to to share these things but while we have the opportunity as long as we have not yet been shut down by the tech overlords um we're we're grateful and and uh, for this opportunity so thank you for being with us thank you for um joining us and listening and sharing and being a part of the Voice and Re- Voice of Reason Radio family. So, uh, as always, I always want to ask my brother because I know I know his answer, and y'all know it too. But Rich, how you doing this week? <laughs> Better than I deserve. Amen. Is that what you were that's what me to say? you know. I'll tell you right now, that's gonna be that's gonna be one of the logos when we finally have uh, swag. Is we're gonna have to make one of those. We got to talk to him about that. We 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 have something in the works. Shh, it's a secret. It's a secret. Shh, don't say anything. We have something in the works, but we're going to have to tell him that we're going to have to make a logo with that that says better than I deserve. That will be a conversation starter. <laughs> well, honestly, I didn't come up with that. I stole it from a dear brother of ours years and years ago, but I latched onto it and it's fit and suited me well for the last decade. So I've, I've kind of grabbed hold to it and just ran with it and I've actually used that as a starter to a gospel conversation, especially over the years, as many doctors that I've had to visit. And typically, you know, you get the nurse comes in, well, how are you doing today? And I respond with better than I deserve. (laughs) And that generally gives, I usually get some very odd looks, but I'm, I'm thrilled to say that I had a, I have a doctor that I see regularly that came in one day and asked me, how was I doing? And I said, better than I deserve. And the response was, aren't we all? And the, the, the doctor is a Christian and I have no doubt that they are not, they are, you know, I have no doubt they're a true believer, but you know, it's encouraging to come across someone in the medical field that understands that sentiment and replies in, in, in that manner. But I'm going to ask you, brother, because I don't think I normally do, but how are you doing this week? Well, I haven't had to be afraid of the mailbox for a little while, so it's okay. Yeah, we're doing all right. (laughs) I haven't had had insane things show up, although uh, our our good friend over at, um, I think it's a, a Pilgrim's Coffer Theology, that's the 
That's the webpage. Jared Payne, he recently put together these uh, mugs that I... When you guys get a chance to order them, you need to do this. He put, he made these mugs. I think he orders them and then engraves them. And it has this fantastic emblem. And it says, we preach Christ and him crucified. And I got my mugs this week. They were beautiful. I, 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 I just drank my chai tea, my second chai tea latte of the day. Don't normally drink two because it's a lot of caffeine. Um, probably why I'm talking so fast, but, uh, I, I just had to break the mug in. It's just beautiful. So I had that come in this week. Uh, that was, that was fantastic. Didn't have to have a heart attack opening the mailbox this week. So that's actually been a good week. <laughs> Brother, that is so, so sad. A mug <laughs> is a terrible thing to waste. They are meant for coffee, not tea. Brother, I have tried, y'all know this, I have tried to drink coffee. How y'all drink that swill water is beyond me. <laughs> well, and and when I say coffee, I'm not talking about the sweetened up flavored stuff. I'm talking good old fashioned <sighs> coffee. As my as my granddaddy used to say, if it ain't strong enough to slap down a mule, it ain't coffee. <laughs> Brother, I don't care if it's sweetened up lathered up, sugared <laughs> up, you know, milked up to the nth degree. How you drink that bitter swill, I just, I can't. My wife will hand me a cup of something and say, you can barely taste the coffee. You know what I taste? Coffee. So, <laughs> I cannot drink that stuff. I've tried, I've tried, I gave up. I drink what I like, and it ain't coffee. So, y'all just gonna have to deal with it. <laughs> well, when... when my coffee, it is black, it is strong, and it has nothing in it but coffee. So um, that's my definition of coffee. Although I will say the best cup of coffee I've ever had in my life was actually while I was in New Zealand years upon years ago. I don't know what flavor, blend, or what it was, but that was the best coffee <laughs> I, ever, I have ever drank in my life. And I have to tell you, it was almost too strong even for me. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. When we pull up to the local coffee shop, yes, we go to Starbucks, live with it, um, and there's two drinks ordered, the frou-frou drink ain't going to my wife. She drinks for coffee black, too. I get the frou-frou stuff because I, <laughs> I cannot drink anything with coffee in it. So I always end up with a chai tea latte, no water, and, and two pumps of mocha, and y'all can just deal. You ought to see the look I get sometimes when I tell them to put the mocha in it, the chocolate. And they look at me with the weirdest look on their face. I'm telling you, it's excellent. I love it. So y'all can just deal. <laughs> and this is an old inside joke, but in the in the event she is listening, Karen Blackburn, decaf coffee is not real coffee. <laughs> oh goodness. All right, all right. Well, now see this the sad part about this is now I'm gonna get inundated with like coffee comments or people trying to send me coffee or convincing me to drink coffee okay. <laughs> if you're gonna send chris coffee send it to me instead i will drink it chris will just put it on the shelf no I'll, I'll, wife might my wife will drink it so see this this is this is the one thing aside from the items which shall not be named um because that needs to die uh but but um coffee if you send that i'll never drink it but my wife will happily do so so you know if you want to do that that's fine just understand you will never convince me i've tried i gave up i'm done 
<laughs> so anyway, anyway, we, 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 we're starting to slip back into old habits. It's now 11 minutes into the program and we haven't gotten onto our show yet. So let's, let's give our poor listeners a break and start, start talking about this week's subject. Mm. So, um, at, in the last program, we talked about, um, the article that we dropped last week on slave to the king.com, which was the article was titled philosophies and empty Dis- Excuse me, I can't even read my my own article now. Philosophies, <laughs> philosophies and empty deceits: the battle for the sufficiency of Scripture. And you know what's going on? See, somebody's going to listen to that and go, "Well, see, the reason you can't talk is you need coffee." So, <laughs> but it's uh, the article was dropped on April 9th, twenty twenty one, on SlaveToTheKing.com. and we'll we did it in the last program, but we'll go ahead and put it in the show notes for this program. Um, the point of this article, Rich, when I dropped it was I have been, the way I've been doing my studies lately, it, and this was encouraged, uh, something that encouraged was I was encouraged in myself to do by reading Nate Pickowitz's book on, um, you know, how to eat your Bible, this idea of just that daily, constant study. And he, his book is fantastic. In fact, Nate, we've got to get you on the show. You really need to come on here and talk about it. Um, but the, his his encouragement and the way he talks about you know it, the first portion of his book is all about why we need to study scripture and what scripture is and what it does and what it accomplishes in our lives but the latter part of the book it talks about the system that he kind of adopted which was born out of what John MacArthur does uh, or John MacArthur teaches people to do in terms of studying scripture and MacArthur's method is you, you read the same book of the Bible every day for 30 days. So in this case, the book of Colossians, you would read it daily, you know, all four chapters daily for 30 days. And you're just going to, you know, read and read and read and read. And you're going to get to know that book very well. Uh, Nate's method was rather than doing it um, 30 days in a row, he had it re- uh, basically the number of times he's read it through. So he would read, say, Colossians 30 times, but he would break it up into... 15 times in the morning, 15 times in the evening. So in a little over two weeks, you you will have read Colossians 30 times, but you'll have done it over a two-week period instead of 30 days. So that's a, that's a shortened version of that. Well, I love Nate to death. There's no way on earth I'm reading. I'm going to probably manage to convince myself to do it morning and evening, mostly because my I work 10-hour days. I'm up at 5 in the morning, and I'm trying to get to bed at 8.30 at night. So... I I, I kind of split the difference and I went, okay, I'll read it 15 days in the mornings and then I'll go to the next book 15 days at a time. And by the way, if you're going, well, what about like a, a, a you know, Romans, which has 16 chapters, break it up into chunks, do five, then five, then six, you know, you break it up that way. But I've been doing that with Colossians. And so the thing about Colossians that's, as, as somebody pointed out, is there's that passage that is just so very, very important about not letting ourselves being taken captive by plausible arguments, uh, you know, philosophies and empty deceits. And the more I read that just over and over and over again, I couldn't help but seeing a parallel with what's going on in our culture right now. Um, You know, we again and again and again have to understand that the Word of God is the sole source of authority for our, our faith and practice. And throughout Colossians, Paul 
repeatedly talks about praying for the Colossians, that they would come to a full understanding, a full knowledge uh, of God's promises and his word. And it's, you know, Colossians 2.8 where he said, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And we've got this huge battle going on right now that I don't think most people even recognize it because they, it's being couched in such a way that we are not seeing what the underlying argument is. And the battle is for the sufficiency of Scripture. Rich, you and I both know that most everybody <clears throat> tries to, at least in word, except for the leftists, and we, we talked about people like Jory Micah recently, and who doesn't draw upon Scripture at all, believes it's fallible, and believes in her own inner guidance system, which is busted worse than a compass that's magnets broken. Um, but with, within modern evangelicalism, most people would at least give lip service to the idea of inerrancy, which is that the word of God is truthful and without error in everything that it speaks to, right? So that's well, not the biggest, that's not the battle we're having right now, but go ahead, sorry. I was just going to point out that um, the fact that Paul wrote this to the Colossians and what he said in this letter proves that, once again, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm -hmm. They face the same challenges and obstacles that we still face today. And that is based to the bare bones. Did God really say? Exactly. And obviously during this point in time, he was having to address influences that were coming into the church that were relying on things outside of scripture. They were trying to pull from worldly wisdom. But as Paul said, you know, he preached nothing but Christ and him crucified. When Paul stood in Athens with all the learning and all the teachings. And Paul was a very, very educated man, you know, in the realm of things for that era, but he preached nothing but Christ and him crucified. And the, and the Bible constantly tells us, you know, that, that Jews were seeking signs and wonders and the Greeks were seeking wisdom. So reading this, I get the impression that both of those influences were coming together within this church, you know, because there's a reason Paul wrote this letter. There's a reason th Paul said the things that he said. It was because these things were going on in that church. Mm -hmm. And guess what? The same things are going on today. The, the arguments may be different, but when you strip it all away, it still comes down to, did God really say, is God is the Bible enough? Is God's Word enough for us to have as we proceed in our lives as Christians? And that's that's exactly it. Um, you know, when we're dealing with this issue in our current day, and, and one of the things that I I wrote in the article is that most people, you know, probably most professing Christians are going to believe that Scripture's inerrant. But it's there. Even if you're not coming out and saying, I don't think the Bible's enough, and I don't think most mainstream evangelicals are going to say that, your practice... Oh, go ahead. Brother, let me, let me interrupt you just for clarification in case we have some young Christians listening. 
Could you explain what the word inerrant means? So again, inerrant would be that the Bible is without error in all that it addresses, all that it says and does. So everything that is in it from Genesis to Revelation is God's inerrant word as revealed from him. Now, one of the the discussions that you'll sometimes hear is, or one of the things you'll sometimes hear is that we say it is inerrant and it's the autographs, the original writings, because we don't have those today. What we have today are the manuscript copies. And so if you listen, if you read books by um, Michael Kruger, for example, or if you listen to James White, who often talks about textual reliability and uh, how we actually get translations, what we have today are manuscript copies, and all those manuscripts uh, are scribal copies over and over. And when we look at the scribal, or these copies made by scribes and stuff like that, you'll find that the vast majority of them will line up, but you'll find little minor areas of difference or sometimes major areas, which is where you get into the debate of <clears throat> Textus Receptus versus uh, the the collections of manuscripts that make up, say, like the NASB or the ESV. And that's that's a whole uh, another area of debate, which we won't get into at this time. I, I really recommend go listen to stuff that James White has done or look up Michael J. Kruger, who's got several books on uh you know the how we got our canon of scripture how uh the the text is compiled and translated in its reliability um or uh, one good video and i think uh that they have it on james white's website is new testament reliability which wretched put together um that's another real good one so the point is is that when we compile those manuscript copies and identify what are like the really bad stuff and identify what are uh what might be just typographical errors or stuff like that we can compile today we have a very strong uh reason to believe that what we have in our modern bibles today is what you have uh from the original autograph copies so when you read you pick up an esv you pick up an nasb whatever you do don't pick up the message um not a translation but <laughs> Uh, when you pick one of those up, you have pretty much what the original autographs looked like. So it, what we say is that <clears throat> they are fully inerrant in the autographs, the original writings, and what you have today is representative of that. So we say that when God speaks in his revealed word, we are saying there it is without error. It, God has spoken without error. It, everything in there is right. And so we use that as our sole authority for faith and practice because it is without error. It comes from God. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit, written down, and it was by uh, human beings who could not have put in their own interpretation because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was, you know, it's not like they messed up on their, their grocery list. We're talking about the Holy Spirit had them write exactly what they were supposed to write. God's not going to let that get messed up. So that's the that's the point behind that. That's a, that's a really probably sloppy way. I'm sure people like James White would smack me upside the head for that short uh, version of explaining it. But that's what we mean by inerrant, that it is without error in all that God has revealed in his written word. So most people would, even if they don't fully understand it, would say, yeah, I believe the Bible's inerrant. But when it comes to sufficient, that's an entirely different matter. Sufficient, the whole concept of sola scriptura, this idea that we trust the Bible solely for all our faith and practice. We don't look to a pope. We don't look to bishops. We don't look to some sort of outside source 
to reinforce, not tradition or anything else, and to reinforce our uh, authority of faith and practice. Rather, it is solely a, a God's word that we trust in. That's where I think the battle is being fought today. And we see that because we have a lot of, and we've talked about it on this show, and I know if you've listened to guys like Just Thinking and other programs, um, there is a major, major push with, to bring in outside philosophies such as critical theory, social justice, etc. And as uh, the SBC faced under Resolution 9, they say this is an analytical tool. It's They say subservient to scripture, but I would say in practice is set above scripture and it is, an, it is a tacit acknowledgement that you have to go to this philosophy to understand the problem before you go to the word of God. That is the practice that we're seeing. And so when even if you don't say that you de- that you deny the sufficiency of scripture, the moment that you take something that is not drawn out of the scriptures but comes from outside, it is a philosophy of men, and you bring that in, you're saying I have to have this in order to apply what scripture says. You've now practically set the philosophy of men over scripture. And you and I'll tell you right now, nobody reading scripture would have drawn out critical theory, social justice or intersectionality. Why? Because it's not being taught throughout church history that we've ever seen. It is something new. It is a philosophy of men that has been brought in by the spirit of the age and now we're trying to marry it with scripture. And that is a practical admission. We do not believe God's word is sufficient to address these issues. So does does that make sense, Rich? Am I making a, a you know clear enough argument there? Brother, you're right on track. You're doing an excellent <laughs> job. So can continue continue <laughs> down the road that you're leaving us. So um so that that was that was one of the main subpoints of, of the article is that this is the battle right now. We as Christians need to be- trust and believe that God's word contains all that is needed for the faith and practice in the life of a Christian. Now, mind you, when someone's going to come to you and say, "Well, the Bible is doesn't speak on all kinds of things," you know, how, you know, it doesn't tell me how to repair my car. You're right; it doesn't tell you how to repair your car. It doesn't tell you how to build a, a Saturn V rocket either. The, the, it's not that the Bible is that it's sufficient for all things everywhere. It doesn't tell you how to you know, repair a sucking chest wound. Okay, It doesn't mean that there isn't knowledge in this world that we can use and apply. It, that, it is that for the faith and practice of the Christian, it is our sole authority. So, yes, there are things in this world that God has allowed us to learn and understand and apply such as physical sciences. We can study the weather so we know what weather patterns are coming. And when Rich has softball size hail coming into his state, he knows to take cover. <laughs> okay, The Bible doesn't tell us that we need uh, physical sciences to, to tell us that. We, we, can, we can go to the physical sciences and learn that. The Bible doesn't you know, speak to us on uh, you know, chemistry. It doesn't speak to us on uh, a lot of various things. But... For the faith and practices of a Christian who is living in this world and facing many things, we look to God's word first to inform our thinking, our spiritual walk, our practice as we go into the world and are interacting with those various things. So, yes, someone will tell you, 
that well the bible doesn't cover those things and yet you can you you need your manual to operate your computer or you need to go to take a class to learn how to drive a car yes you're right they, they it does but as a christian in driving my car i I, I am informed that I need to obey the traffic laws. Why? Because first and foremost, I need to honor God. And I need to obey the legitimate laws of, of, of the road because those laws are there for the you know the safety of other people out there. And if I love my neighbor and I would wish to not harm my neighbor, which is what I am commanded in Scripture to do, then I'm going to obey the traffic laws. I'm going to stop at the stoplight. I'm going to follow the speed limit. I'm going to yield when people or you know pedestrians are walking across the street. And I'm serious. Please yield. Don't run those people over. You guys are crazy out there. Um, but the faith and practice tells me that I need to obey the traffic laws. Not just I'm not going to just obey the traffic laws because I don't want a ticket. I want to I want to honor God. Okay, so I'm going to learn how to drive my car in a manner that is consistent with protecting people on the road and obeying the traffic laws because of the people in authority above me have set those laws for the safety of the community. So. That's why the Bible is necessary, because it informs me how to live in this world. So don't let someone hit you with that. Well, it doesn't cover these other things, and you have to trust in those other uh, scientific advances or these legal issues or these philosophical paradigms. When it comes to your faith and practice and how you apply those things in your life, you go to the Word of God first. You don't go to those other things. When you, when you fix your car, you're fixing it because you want it to be safe on the road so that you honor God when you're driving, right? So that's that's why you want to be careful about not letting someone manipulate that conversation. So that's the big that's the first thing I, I wanted to uh, point out Rich is that there is a battle going on and it is specifically within this realm of uh, social justice, critical theory, whatever you want to call it because there are people today who are saying we have to adopt a, a worldly philosophical paradigm to say, well, if you hate racism and you believe in justice, then you need to you need to practice these things. But Rich, we're not drawing those things out of Scripture. So if you're not drawing them out of Scripture and you're going to this philosophical paradigm, you're denying the sufficiency of Scripture. Would that be correct? Oh, absolutely. And backtracking a little bit on what you were talking about and using the car as an as an analogy the lord has graciously blessed us with many things in this day and age but the bible informs and instructs instructs us on how to use those blessings um and that is our compass that is our guide in all things whether it is repairing a car or or a computer or whatever everything that we have at our disposal is a blessing and a gift from the Lord. And as Christians, it is our responsibility to use those blessings to glorify him. I mean, if, if I was broke and destitute and finally managed to get a car instead of going out looking for work, if I was out on the streets running down people, I would not be glorifying God and, 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 and the use of the blessing of that vehicle. But when it comes to these other issues, when it comes to philosophy, psychology, sociology, all of these other things, um, the Bible has already laid out everything we need to know when it comes to how to treat and deal with other people. And when we come up with a new philosophy like critical theory and, and social justice, 
they tried to make that the prominent aspect mm-hmm. and then try to say, okay, this verse is talking about this issue. So this issue needs to be more important than what the verse says. But the verse itself is what guides and teaches mm-hmm. and leads us because, you know, the the second greatest commandment is to love others as you, you know, mm-hmm. love your, you know, love yourself to treat people equally. Yeah. And that bare, you know, that basic concept, they try to add to it and explain expand it beyond what scripture teaches and ultimately all of this stuff can be rolled right back into a works type righteousness and when you're adhering to a works type righteousness you're always going to be trying to add works to earn and work your way towards heaven Mm -hmm. because if you're trying to work your way to heaven there's never going to be enough works to get you there so you're going to try to add more and make more things available that you can work your way towards. I know that there are men and women that adhere to these philosophies that do not believe in works righteousness, but unknowingly they have succumbed to that way of thinking that by doing this, 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 and this, it's going to make me right. Mm -hmm. But the problem is they're not trying to make themselves right with God. They're trying to make themselves right in the eyes of other people based on those people's particular beliefs that right. makes sense no absolutely that's and and that's the thing it's you're not you're not looking to scripture in its context you're looking at worldly definitions and I, I remember having a conversation with my pastor about this not long ago and one of the things that we were talking about was they'll even take biblical terminology such as justice you know equality you know, you know, uh, oppression, you know, you know, the poor, etc. But they will attach meanings to them that are not scriptural. They're, they're, you know, they're redefining those terms and then using biblical terms to make it even sound like they're talking from b- biblical. So it is one of those problems that it is not only a practical denial of the sufficiency of scripture, but it's also changing scripture. It is usually, you know, something that's that's not drawn out, but it's a redefinition and imported in, and that's that's where it's a, a big problem as well. So, the second point of the article is that it's this issue of rejecting plausible arguments. In in uh, chapter two, verse four, Paul says uh, that he had written to them that they he wanted them to grow in knowledge in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. I mean, he literally, in the in, in the uh, verse 2, same chapter, he literally had said that he was struggling for them, uh, that they would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. God's, you know, Paul's desire for the Colossians was to have a genuine knowledge of God. And, and of course, as you read through all his passages, he would always point them back to Scripture. He would, and, and remember, Scripture, in its totality, is what we call, you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But at the time that these letters are being written, New Testament canon wasn't complete. The letters were being circulated, and many churches had read them. But primarily, your your primary teaching source it was the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, and he's teaching from 
those passages, I mean, Christ himself to his apostles on the on the road to Emmaus revealed all of the, man, what a what an amazing Bible study that would have been. All all that the the law and the prophets spoke of about him. You know, you can't, you know, so for the Andy Stanleys of the world, the Old Testament is a necessity. You you have to you have to have the Old Testament for the New Testament to even make sense. And so we come, you know, he is arguing that he wants them to come to full assurance and understanding of the uh, of knowledge of God's mystery. Hey, brother. Yes, go ahead. I want, I want to kind of point this out. There's a key word in what you just read is the word plausible. Mm -hmm. And focus on that word for just a moment. Plausible. That means arguments that sound logical, mm -hmm. that made sense to them, that you know, appeal to their intellect that seem like, okay, this, this is a, this is very sound, possibly even biblical, you know, that this is very believable. Um, and I, I don't think that word can be stressed enough that he was talking about, you know, legitimate sounding arguments, just like we face today. Yeah. And exactly it. I mean, if you look at the dictionary, it's you know it's a, it's an adjective. It's a, an argument or statement that is seeming reasonable or probable. You know that it, so it sounds very, you know, it sounds like like you say logical. It sounds like that makes sense. It sounds like it should be applied. But he he makes a point of saying that he says, "See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit." So plausible sounds. Sounds like it, it it should work. Sounds like it's convincing. Sounds like it, we should apply it. But he refers to it as philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. That's the big thing there. The, how is it we're going to know what the difference is of a worldly plausible argument, something that sounds like it should make sense and should be adopted versus what is according to Christ. Well, that's where it comes back to the word of God. See, the, you have these people who tell you, you know, like the Jory Micahs of the world who say, you know, we have an inner guidance system and that's what's going to tell me what's right and what's wrong. But scripture is actually tells us to be leery of the human heart because it's desperately sick right? It's wicked. It's broken. It's, you know, uh, apart from Christ, we don't have, uh, you know, anything that we should trust of our heart. And in Christ, we need to be re constantly renewed by the washing of the water of the word. So how are you going to know what is a worldly plausible argument, something that is according to human tradition versus according to Christ, and it's going to be God's revealed word. He, he actually warns the Colossian believers that there are arguments that are antithetical to Scripture. They're in a opposition to Scripture. They're man-made. They have no biblical substance. But they are persuasive. They are persuasive. They can actually seem to be legitimate. They can actually take you captive and pull you into that argument to where you think this is something I need to do. That's the, the issue about being plausible. It's like when somebody comes to you, and we're like, we turn on the evening news, for example, and we see <clears throat> something about, okay, the big thing today is a police shooting. Now, I'm not going to get into the, the one that happened recently. I'm not talking about that. But we hear about a police shooting, and you hear the initial reports. And it seems so obvious that this the cop was out of line and blah, blah, blah. 
And then later, quietly, more information starts to come out. And as the quietly released information comes out, you begin to realize the cop was not in the wrong. The other guy attacked the officer, grabbed his gun, or whatever it is, or had a knife and tried to stab, or whatever, was attacking another person. Now you have more information. And you go, oh, in light of the new information, the full story, that initial plausible argument was wrong. Well... That's the problem with the you know plausible arguments, philosophies, and empty deceits that are according to human tradition. They sound right. They sound like they seem to have something that's valid or legitimate. The only way you can discern whether it's true is to go to the Word of God, and that's the problem. When we are saying, as with you know social justice you know arguments right now. Well, this is this is proof that there's systemic racism. You can't question it. If you question it, that proves you're a racist and etc. And you start pushing down that line. A lot of people are being pulled into those arguments. And they're being said, well, we don't want to be racist. We want to love our brethren. And so they listen to that and they don't examine it in the light of Scripture because the second you start to examine it in the light of Scripture and you find it doesn't line up, that's when people start screaming, well, you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're you know, you're uh you hate women, whatever. And that's the problem is it sounds good, but it isn't. So there were two things that Paul talks about in, in kind of one particular argument at once. And this is in uh, again in chapter 2, uh, verse 16 and 17, he says, <clears throat> Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So that's point number one. Paul is saying, when you look at Scripture and you see all these festivals and new moons and uh, you know issues of food and drink, and people are telling you, come back under the law, and he's saying this to the Colossians, come back under the law, follow the the the, the uh, you know the the things that God has commanded. It sounds plausible because it's it it's pointing to the Bible. The problem is it's pointing to the Bible incompletely. It is not pointing to that these were, in fact, shadows of things to come. They pointed us to Christ. They pointed us to the promised Messiah. That in its totality, Scripture was using all of this to point us to the fact that when Messiah came, he would fulfill all of this. And that salvation wasn't something we could merit or earn, but salvation was something that was given through grace, by, uh, by grace through faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying. That when you get pulled under the law, as the, if you were the Colossians, you were being pulled back under the law, you were being pulled into something that was lacking complete revelation. So you can have people who tell you, try to draw things from the Bible, but they do so without full, <clears throat> a full, complete orb revelation of, of, of the gospel. So when someone tries hey, to bro. pull... Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to point out that throughout all of Paul's epistles, there's one theme that carries over from one to the other is, and it seems like Paul constantly was having to debate and fight against the, the question, if you're truly saved, you will be circumcised. Right. And in today's age, that is the new the social justice. Racism mm -hmm. is the new circumcision. If you're truly saved, you're going to do this, this or this. But, you know, the Bible teaches us that, the fruit of the Spirit is evidence of salvation, not doing certain 
things or certain deeds, just like during that age, you know, they were trying to say, well, if you're truly saved, you need to be circumcised. Well, more times than not today from certain Christian camps, you're basically hearing, well, if you're truly saved, you're going to be standing up against racism. If you're truly saved, you're going to be advocating for social justice and equality and equity and and that everyone should have the same outcome regardless. You know, it, it, it still, to me, goes back, they're adding works instead of grace. They're, they're relying on their, on their own merit. They're relying on their own works instead of the completed work of Jesus Christ. Because all of that still sums up that if, if, if you hate your brother, if you hate your neighbor, you're committing murder in the heart. Jesus taught that at the Sermon on the Mount, that if you hate your brother, you're in sin, that you're committing murder. But with what's going on today, they take it further than that and say, well, if you've ever been guilty of racism, the forgiveness of Christ is not enough. You need to be making up for it by doing this, this, and this. And mm -hmm. in you know, some circumstances, that might be true, but they take it even farther and say that, well, since your ancestors did this, this, or this, you need to do this. Mm -hmm. Because now they're trying to not only hold you accountable for your potential sins, but they're trying to hold you accountable for the sins of, of your forefathers, which is not biblical. That is not taught in the New Testament. God holds us accountable for our sins, and God holds us accountable for the sin that we lead others into. Mm -hmm. God holds us accountable for what we teach and preach. But I don't believe anywhere in there God says, okay, your great-great-granddaddy committed this sin, so you're responsible for it. Have you ever come across that in the New Testament? No, and in fact, you would you would not even find that in any part of Scripture. In fact, it, you know the Scriptures teach us that we are not uh, to hold the you know the the father or excuse me the son responsible for the sins of the father. Um, certainly, we can find throughout Scripture where like the nation of, of Israel could be held corporately accountable for what it did as a nation. And a lot of people who argue these, you know, social justice type arguments like to point to that. But the first thing that, you know, I've, I've tried to point out to people when I hear that is, what is the primary sin that Israel is always held responsible for as a nation? It's rebellion to, to uh, uh, and idolatry, not obeying God as a nation, not loving God as a nation, but chasing after idolatry, gods of their own design. So until we've addressed even that issue, which is if you look at America... We've got, we don't have a nation that has been called as Israel was to be a specific people to, to God. And God is not holding America in that stead, nor is he holding any nation in that stead. Rather, he is calling people from around the world to him in Christ. I don't think it's, it's applicable, not in the same vein. So, but yeah, you're absolutely right. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches us to, to look back to the sins of the fathers. And that's part of... One, go ahead. One more thing real quick, and I'll, I'll let you continue. But another aspect that goes along with this, that within the social justice circles, those that advocate for CRT mm -hmm. and all these different labels that, that's added to this, and it all comes back to the same thing. But it is never finished. It's a continual... Mm -hmm type of repentance is a continual 
repaying someone for the sins that someone else committed. And I've asked this question, and, you know, the, the, the topic of reparations has come up time and time again. And I've asked this question, okay, based on what you're saying, okay, if I am held responsible for the sin of slavery of my great-great-grandfather, and I pay you reparations, does that clear the potential sins of any of my future-born right. great-great-great-grandchildren? And the answer is always no. Of course not. Then they come back and then they come back and say, well, you're responsible for your sins. So my question is, okay, if I'm responsible for my sins and I'm paying you reparations for the sins of my ancestors, then what's going to cover the sins of my descendants? And it always comes back to, you need to be doing this. You need yep. to be doing that. It never comes back to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Well, and that's where the second part of Paul's statement in chapter 2 really, in my opinion, plays in. Because the first part was talking about essentially coming back under the law, but the second part he says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in details, a detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. And then later, verses 22 to 20, 20 to 23, he talks about, you know, if you have died to the element of spiritual of the world, why do you submit to certain regulations? And he says, these have indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but... They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So when we are dealing with arguments like these, which, like the stuff you're talking about, this constant treadmill of work that you have to do to make up not only for the past sins that you had nothing to do with, but your sins that by not dealing with the issues of the past and by not acknowledging that somehow you're responsible for them and not admitting that you're part of a system that's a, a, oppressive, this is one of those things where people hear it and they go, well, it, it sounds like this is all really bad and it sounds like I've been part of it without recognizing it. And so I have to do all these, I have to submit to all these regulations. I have to do all these things, but they have no biblical basis. Think about it. When Paul says, no, don't let anybody dis uh, disqualify you for, you have to have an ascetic lifestyle, this severity of body. You know, you heard, you heard about the ascetics who would live in the desert and in caves. They'd afflict themselves with pain. Why? Because somehow to prevent themselves from, from sinful uh, acts and desires, which, it, but that has no, it, it accomplishes nothing. It sounds like, boy, if I could just afflict myself, you know, Martin Luther would talk about that. The, 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 you know, the, uh, the, the, the beating himself and flagellating himself, trying to, to keep himself from sin. Um, but it, it accomplishes nothing. The the idea of worshiping of angels, which is you know throughout Scripture, every time an angel appears and someone starts to bow down, they say stop. No. The idea of going on about visions, which by the way, if you were someone who said that God revealed something to him in a vision, you better be one hundred percent right, or you were struck dead as a false prophet. You know the uh, going all this stuff. You're being puffed up with a sensuous mind. All of these things have some sort of appeal that we could, well, uh, you know, th there was something about it. Well, angels are messengers from God, so of course I would worship them. Or, uh, you know, I can, uh, I, I can, I, I'm getting revelation from God, and so this is what you need to hear, and this is what you need to do. And people would go, wow, that sounds 
like God is really doing something in this person's life and maybe I need to listen to them. Maybe I need to practice what they're saying. But there was nothing about it that was biblical. It was ne- it was all contradictory to scripture. And the way we know that is Paul himself says it appears to have wisdom. It appears to be uh, religious and ascetic and, and, and severe to the body, but it's of zero value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you have arguments that somehow have this appeal that you can do something, you accomplish something, you can follow someone, and maybe that's going to help you or that's going to improve your walk or it's going to validate your faith, but it has zero effect in your life. There's zero value. It doesn't stop the des- uh, you know from you desiring to sin. It doesn't stop you from sinning. It does nothing. It accomplishes zero. And honestly, that's what these social justice arguments are. They are empty deceit. They have no- yeah. nothing that can actually accomplish what they claim they want it to do. Go ahead, Rich. It's actually becoming more and more evident mm-hmm. that it is turning into the religion of race to where race is worshipped, it's elevated above Scripture. You should put a person's race above anything else, that just because this demographic has been mistreated over history, now we need to elevate them above anything and anyone Mm -hmm. else in society. It is becoming the religion, the worship of race itself. And more times than not, those people that are accusing other people of being racist are in fact themselves exhibiting a form of racism Mm -hmm. because racism means that you favor one race over another. You favor one skin tone over another. And within social justice and CRT, now they're elevating one particular skin tone over another skin tone, Mm -hmm. and they're still promoting an environment and an atmosphere of racial prejudice because if you are acting in such a way to one person because of their skin tone, whether positive or negative, you're guilty of racism just because the simple fact you're treating them a certain way just because of their skin tone, regardless of whether it's, you know, white, light brown, dark brown, black, whatever. But anytime you treat one person differently than you do another person, specifically because of their skin tone, you're guilty of racism whether it is positive or negative. And that's the point that they seem mm-hmm. to not realize within these discussions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that it is what Paul refers to as empty deceit. It is, it is a philosophy that is not drawn from biblical truth, but yet wants to be equated with biblical truth. You know, Scripture points us to Christ. It reveals who we are outside of Christ. We are dead in trespasses and sins. There's nothing we can accomplish. Everything that we do is always tainted by the stain of stain of sin. So no matter how much effort we put into something, it's always tainted with the stain of sin. So you can never earn any kind of favor or merit with God. So it points us to Christ, the one who died in our place, the one who took the wrath of God upon himself, who through his death, burial, and resurrection, secures uh, everlasting life, who renews the heart, regenerates the heart and mind, and and, uh, puts the Holy Spirit within us, makes us a new creation, who desires 
to worship God and be obedient to him for his purpose, his glory. But what does social justice do? What is its primary concern? Equality, worldly equality by its definition in areas of uh, worldly wealth and power. It says that there's two groups of people. The biblical de- de- uh, description of, of those two groups is you're either in Christ or in Adam. You're either a new creation and uh, made righteous by Christ, or you're in Adam, dead in trespasses and sins. But that's not what social justice says. It says there's two groups of people. You're either the powerful oppressor, or you're the oppressed victim. And that's what you always are. You're, there's never a hope of coming out of one of those groups. You're, what, you're either oppressed or oppressor. And so the only way that there's any uh, equality is that the oppressed must be lifted up and the oppressor must be beaten down. And so they have to switch positions, so to speak. But it will always be, no matter what, how it looks, no matter how you've tipped the scales in one direction, the groups will always be oppressor and oppressed. And even if you achieve the goal that you set out for, you'll never say that the oppressed group is now equal, or you'll never say that it is uh, the oppressor group. It will never be anything other than the oppressors must always be pushed down. So you can never have a crossing. You can never have an equality because it's this never-ending cycle in which the oppressed oppressor group can never get off and become atoned, made equal, uh, may, uh, have made up for. They will always be the oppressor group. So you're never, there, there's no designation where, Rich, you and I, when we were in Adam, we were made right with Christ and we, by his work, and we are now no longer in Adam, we are in Christ. But the earthly designations under social justice, there's never that place where you cross. There's never that place where it's equal, uh, the equality is ever achieved. Um, and so, this is the empty deceit that Paul talks about. It's according to earthly traditions. It is the man-made system. We live in a world that's broken. We live in this world by tyrants. And while we have to be obedient to those in authority over us, we also get to call people, leaders, away from sin into repentance. But we're not called to this equalizing of systems. We're never called to make power struggles equalized. We're called to go forth and make uh, disciples of every nation. We are to preach the gospel. We call people away from sin and out of worldly desires to follow Christ. And you know the, the wonderful thing about that, and I state this in the article, is that when you do that, and you see what happens in the life of a believer, you that believer wants to obey Christ because he has a new heart. He's, he's a slave to his new king, his new Lord. He's a slave to Christ. And so he changes and he begins to do things differently. And we see throughout history, despite what social justice rewriting of history says, wherever Christianity went and flourished, nations flourished. But the difference is that under social justice, they redefine that to say, well, those, those, that flourishing was oppression because certain groups were not equal with other groups. And so what it does is social justice doesn't call people out of sin and out of darkness into light and imbues them with a heart and a love and a desire to serve God. Rather, it creates anger, the evil desire, covetousness. It divides rather than unites. You're either a victim 
or you're an oppressor. If you're an oppressor, the most you can ever hope for is a never-ending treadmill, and maybe, maybe you'll get a token of acknowledgement for your efforts, but you'll never be off the treadmill. It brings no promise of joy, no promise of hope, or, or excuse me, no hope of salvation, no possibility of unity. It's always an, a, 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 a system by which division happens. And so it's this plausible argument that says, hey, if you love people and you don't want them to be oppressed, do this because that's justice and you're all about justice as a Christian, right? But the truth is it destroys and breaks down. It divides and puts into groups that can never be crossed. It's empty deceit, pure empty deceit. Uh, did you have something to say, Rich? I think I jumped over you there. I, I was just, no, that's fine. I was just going to say what you just said is interesting because if you go to Colossians 3, chapter 3, verses 5, Paul says, well, I'll jump back up to verse 3, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And that's the thing. Most of the those that we come in contact with that are advocating social justice and advocating sex CRT have made an idol out of that. Mm -hmm. They have, they are, are coveting what they think they don't have. And they're actually encouraging other people to covet what they don't have. Meaning that if you're, a, if you're supposedly oppressed and you're in this group and you're one of the have nots, you should be coveting, what this other person has, which is earthly, meaning, you know, wealth and, and material possessions. It reminds me of when Christ came, they were expecting an earthly ruler that would wipe out the Romans' dominance, and he would set up his, his kingdom here and be a ruler physically. They were not expecting a savior as what he actually was, they were expecting another King David to set up a kingdom for Jerusalem. And that's what you see now. They're advocating an earthly ruled kingdom. They're not advocating an eternal salvation in Christ. They're wanting to see physical results now. And granted, I will backtrack on you a little bit. Christ did speak about another group, the rich and those that were subjected to them. But Christ never advocated for anyone to try to go take away from what this mm -hmm. rich person had. He, he never advocated that, okay, you are entitled to everything this person over here that's got all the wealth and power and food has. He never advocated that, but that's what they advocate. And that is contrary to what Scripture teaches. In Matthew 6.33, I think it is, Christ was talking about you know food and clothing with these we should be content and then it goes on to talk about you know we seek after all these other things but what we should be seeking is things from the kingdom of god meaning mercy pa uh, compassion mm -hmm. love things that christ has defined not the way man wants it defined but the way it is actually defined in the bible amen I mean, when you think about it, you know, the type of person who is redeemed and in Christ, they're the type of person that when Paul says, 
Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. This is, is 3.5 is what you were talking about earlier. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. By the way, the uh, critical theory, social justice, totally based on covetousness. They have what I don't have, totally based on covetousness. You were to put and that some to of it's sexual immorality. Yeah, and it's, 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 it's all idolatry. You desire something that isn't yours, and you have put value on that above what God has done in, in for you. Um, and that's, he says, because of those things, those things we're supposed to put to death, the things that social justice and critical theory elevate as some sort of thing to be desired, these are the things that the wrath of God is coming for. The, the person who is saved, who is in Christ, wants to put these things to death. They don't want to desire things that God has not given them. They, they, they don't want to take for themselves that what God says we should not have. You know, they, we want to put those things that we may struggle, we may fight with those issues over the course of our life, but we want to put them to death. You know, he, he says that uh, we're to put, to de- uh, put away uh, anger, wrath, malice, slander. Slander, that's a big thing within the social justice movement. You said it yourself, Rich. You are guilty of this. Your, your, your past, uh, pr- uh, your ancestors are guilty of this. You are responsible. That's, that's a slanderous statement. To call somebody a, a racist or a bigot, to call them to be a, as guilty of something they've never done, that's slanderous. We're to put those things to death. But this is what the empty deceit of of social justice creates. It actually lifts up as a value. And Paul says, in Christ, we put those things to death. And he says, we're not to lie to one another. Social justice does a lot of lying because we are to put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. The new self goes to the word of God because it wants to imitate its savior. Here, and this is where I think this is one of those verses, to me, this puts the whole social justice movement to death. Here, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. When our identity in social justice is ethnic group Christian, gender group Christian, Victim group, Christian. Uh, oppressor group, Christian. Whatever. It's You have an identity that separates you. But here, when we are in Christ, rather than in social justice, in Christ, we are not Greek or Jew. We're not circumcised or uncircumcised. We're not barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. We are in Christ. That is our identity. But you can't discern that from a plausible argument made by men that says, no, you're all these separate groups. That's how you're defined. No, in Christ, we are all identified by what? Christ. We are all in him. So you need the sufficiency of scripture to help you discern that. Because if you just think, well, we all tend to be in these various groups. And and, and yeah, some groups have had it harder than others. And wow, there's, there seems to be these patterns of behavior. And wow, that argument seems to be. No, in Christ, you are not defined by your ethnicity, your gender, or anything else. You are defined in Christ. That doesn't mean those, those distinctions don't exist. Okay? For example, those who love to use this kind of pastors to say, oh, see, women can be pastors. There are distinctions and there are roles that we play because God has given those, us, us those roles. 
by the way, I'm not a, I'm not pastor material. Trust me. I know my mentality and my temperament. I'm not pastor material. I I may have knowledge. I might be able to uh, teach, but I am not a pastor. Okay. So it does that make it? It's not fair because I can't be a pastor, even though I've my temperament probably doesn't allow for it. No, it's it is fair. God says these are the distinctions that say that say you need to be you qualify to be a pastor. And one of those is gender, like it or not. That's a distinction that God makes because it goes back to the roles of creation and how we are, you know, how we actually represent Christ in the church. So distinctions exist. It doesn't mean that there, we don't recognize historically that those distinctions, those ethnic distinctions, those gender distinctions, have people have done sinful things as a result. And we, we don't strive to do things better in our lives to treat people as imago Dei, created in the image and likeness of God. But that's how we do that is from the word of God to tells us, how informs us how to live, how to talk, how to think, how to treat others. Not from a system that breaks you into groups and says that's the only thing you are. It makes it immutable. You can't change ever. You're always this. And so we are to identify ourselves as in Christ. We're to put the things to, to death, those things that divide us because of their sinfulness. And then we put on, as the word of God teaches us, holy. He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, uh, uh, chapter 312, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. We put on all these things. We now are patient with one another. We're kind to one another. We're humbled before one another. We don't elevate ourselves as more important or better than one another because of our distinctions. It, and if anyone has, or if one has a complaint with another, here's something that critical that uh, critical theory and, and social justice doesn't teach. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Social justice doesn't teach forgiveness. Social justice says you are guilty and you must always do these things to make up for your guilt. You can never be forgiven. You have to earn. You have to work. And you're on this never-ending treadmill. You'll never be not guilty. But yet Christ says when we are in Christ, when we are in him, we forgive one another. Why? Because I'll tell you right now, this is going to get me in trouble. There is nothing that slavery and racism has done in this nation that is a greater sinfulness than what you as an individual have done before God. Yeah, now that's going to get me canceled. Slavery is horrendous. Racism is horrendous. It is a tragedy, the things that happen. It is beyond the pale of what happened. If you ever want to be like a real eye-opening education, you know, read slave narratives. Uh, you know, um, Daryl Harrison talks about those. Okay. I, you know, I read, um, oh my goodness, I can't think of the, the book I just read recently and my brain, <laughs> my brain is sometimes doesn't want to cooperate with me. But uh, Frederick Douglass, his, his um, autobiography, I read that recently and wow, really eye-opening how tragic that was. But nothing that happened... Thing, oh, sorry, go ahead, Rich. One thing I'll add to that, and it's hard to find, 
but read some Christian slave narratives. Mm-hmm. That really puts a damper on the way that the critical theorians try to portray. Mm-hmm. Because believe it or not, there were actually Christian slave owners that obeyed the word of God and treated their slaves the way God commanded them to treat them. Yep. I know that goes completely against everything that they want to tell you, but there were actually men that owned slaves that were Christians that actually treated the slaves as God commands in the word, in his word, when it comes to slavery. Um, I know in today's modern times, the thought of slavery just the, just the word slavery has become a sinful word. Just the thought of it has become a sinful word. But I want to point out that this is overlooked in almost every conversation. The Bible gave specific commands on the way masters were to treat slaves. Mm-hmm. And guess what? There were some Christian slave owners that actually obeyed those commands from God. Mm-hmm. I'm, I, you know, God in his own time and in his own sovereignty ended slavery. And I know I'm not going to get off in the discussion about the different types of slavery and everything else, but when you hear the word slavery, every form of it that you can think of is actually in the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Go study some Roman slave history, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. During the time of Roman slavery, those slaves were not treated, a lot of times they were actually treated worse than the slaves during American slavery because the slaves during the Roman times were more disposable individuals than the slaves during American slavery. But go do some reading and research. But I just wanted to point out, it, they are hard to find, but look up and read some Christian slave narratives and read what some of these, and at the time they were written, were actually slaves, and sometimes it was by former slaves. Mm-hmm. But they talk about if it had not been for that particular slave owner, they would have never been exposed to the Word of God. They would never have heard the gospel. So, you know, the, and, and the word you just coined, I'm going to be using critical theorians, they're critical of slavery, they're critical of everything, without realizing through that tragedy, through that suffering, God used that to save individuals. And a lot of those people that are here today that are professing to be Christians, if it had not been for the fact that their ancestor was brought here in slavery, where would they be at today? Would they be in the United States? Would they be exposed to the gospel? Would they be Christians? And another thing that gets into this with the critical theorians, all they can do is be critical of everything. Mm -hmm. You don't have enough. You're not doing enough. You need more. They, They never acknowledge that our portion in life is given to us by Christ, that where we live, the job that we have, whatever, you know, the circumstance, the Lord has placed us in that situation for a reason, and that's to glorify, if you're a Christian, it's to glorify Him. Amen. That point is never mentioned, it is never discussed. They're basically saying, well, what God has given you is not enough. You need more. You deserve more. You deserve more than what God has already granted. And that is against what the Bible teaches. It goes back to what you said, Scripture is not enough. 
And that and that's the thing when you when you hear things like you you we deserve or you deserve or they deserve. If we went by what we deserve, we all deserve hell. And that's what I was saying before about it, and this is what gets me in trouble is as bad as slavery was there it is not nearly as evil as the sins we commit against God each and every day as individual people because we have sinned against a holy righteous and perfect God. And so when you when we want to take the plausible quote unquote plausible argument of cr critical theory or social justice and we say this is what Christianity about this is what true justice is all about we have we have taken the sin of racism or the sin of slavery, and they were sins, and we've elevated it to the highest possible sin, and that is a sin against another human being, and therefore that's the only thing that matters. That's not biblical because my sin, no matter how badly I've treated other people, my sin against God is greater. And if I don't look to my sins against the God who made me, as the worst possible thing. I mean, think about it. When you, you look at someone like a King David, who slept with a man's wife, got her pregnant, and then killed the man to cover up his, his sin, what was his prayer to God? Against you, Lord, and only you have I sinned. Now, did David was David ignorant that he sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah? Of course not. David knew what he had done against them was wrong. But his... his right understanding of his sin is that first and foremost, the greatest sin of anything that he did was sin against the God who made him and put him where he was. So as bad as his sins were, and they were terrible, his genuine repentance was evidenced not by trying to make things right in the world and trying to make things right against other individuals, but rather his repentance before God. And so the Critical theory, social justice, is empty deceit because it focuses on here, on earth, and be, uh, before men. And we have to repent before men. We have to make all these works happen for other men. We have to do this for mankind. Its focus is here. And I'll tell you right now, there are people like um, Ibram Kendi and others who think that that's the real gospel. They say, Rich, that you and I, when we believe in a savior gospel who saves men's souls, that is the white man's gospel. You know, go, go listen to Daryl and, and uh, Virgil's episode from earlier this week on Just Thinking. They talk about that. That that is considered the racist gospel, the white gospel. And that is the problem. It is, it is a focused on earthly things, earthly powers. You can't draw that from Scripture. You'll never find that in anywhere from Genesis to Revelation if you read it in context, understanding all of Scripture interprets Scripture. You would never draw that out. So you have to go to a plausible earthly argument, a empty deceit, a philosophy of men, to create that idea, which is when you look at historically where they come from, it comes from postmodernism, it comes from Marxism, it comes from the Frankfurt School, all of which were opposed to the Word of God. That's the history where you draw it from. And then we want to say, that's what we need to do the things of the, that are in the Bible? That's lunacy. It is a flat-out admission that the Word of God is sufficient. The only way, the only way 
we do the work of God is if we go to the word of God. Because then we desire to do what God commands us in his word. And we reject earthly arguments. And we stop being divided by plausible worldly arguments. And we become united in the Christ who redeemed us. So if there's any encouragement that I can give, Rich, to the people who hear this, and I would recommend, go read the article. I'm not doing that to get more people to read the article. You know, the number of people that read it, read it. But read the article, and I think you'll see the, the argument I tried to make and how I tried to break this down. We have to, we have to go to God's word first, which informs us and equips us so that then when we look at the arguments of the world, we can realize what they are. That they're arguments that seem plausible, but they're empty. They have an appearance of wisdom, but they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We are to build each other up, as Paul said, by letting the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching, admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's chapter 3, verse 16 in Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. When you do that, you're going to do the things that God wants you to do. You're going to desire to serve God in that way, and you're going to elevate others, and you're going to love others, and you're going to serve others, and you're going to die to self, and you're going to put all those things to death, including this divisive, divisive hatred uh, unforgiveness and covetous attitudes that social justice brings. Social justice is an empty deceit. It is a philosophy of men and it must be rejected. Rich, any last thoughts? Well, I, I, I may have said this a minute ago, but I think the word critical theorians applies perfectly because they're critical of everyone and they're especially critical of God and critical of God's word because they claim to be Christian, but they deny the sufficiency of the scripture they claim is holy. Mm-hmm. That in itself is beyond, you know, kind of twist your mind around. But remember everything Chris said, and remember that it is Jesus Christ that saves sinners. It is not to, Christ doesn't save us to make our life here on earth more comfortable. He doesn't save us so that we'll have rich riches and homes and cars. We're, we're not saved for the prosperity gospel, which is somewhat what social justice and CRT teaches. It's is a form of prosperity gospelism. But we're saved to glorify Christ and to spend an eternity in heaven with Christ living in holiness. We're not saved for things. We're saved for the glory of Christ. So we may be reconciled to him and live a life or pursue on this realm, pursue a life of holiness, striving to be like Christ. And one day we will be like Christ because we will be with Christ in heaven for eternity. So remember these things. And as you go about this week, make it a point to proclaim the gospel at least once a day. And remember, if you're not proclaiming the gospel while it's legal, What makes you think you will ever proclaim it when it becomes illegal? Amen. Amen. Well, folks, hopefully this this program helped you a little bit. Um, 
it, it's, it's not going to be a popular topic to bring up right now. When we stand on the Word of God and we say, this is my sole source of authority for life and practice, that's not going to be popular. When these arguments that were about critical theory and social justice started coming into the church, many of us said, you preach the gospel to deal with racism. And we, and, the, and those who promoted these doctrines of men mocked the idea of just preaching the gospel. Mocked it. That tells you a lot. That tells you a lot when you can draw from Scripture the idea that you are to preach the gospel to every nation, make disciples of Christ, teaching them to obey all that he commanded. We don't obey for merit. We don't obey for salvation. We, we preach the gospel to bring people to salvation and then teach them that we are to be obedient to the God who saved us. As Paul said, should we then go on sinning now that we've been saved? Absolutely not. How can we then uh, put make ourselves a slave of that which you know cost us uh, cost Christ His life for our salvation? How how could we do that? We are to become slaves to our new master. So of course we teach people to be obedient. We teach people to love one another, help one another, provide for one another. But nowhere in Scripture will you ever, ever find the arguments of critical theory if you read them apart from the godless ideologies of men. It is only when someone goes outside of Scripture and develops these quote-unquote analytical tools and then says, hey, I like the way this sounds. Let's bring this to the Word of God and say, this is how you understand what the Word of God says, and this is how you apply justice as the Word of God says. When they bring that in, they have denied the sufficiency of the Word of God. And if you deny the sufficiency of the Word of God, then you have said God is not God. Because God is incapable of providing us what we needed in his word. And we had to look to the godless ideologies of Marxists, atheists, secularists to understand how to apply God's word. If you deny the sufficiency of God's word, you're saying God is not God. God is incapable. He did not. He failed somehow and supplying us with a sufficient word. That's what we just say about the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church denies the sufficiency of God's word because the Catholic Church believes you need a pope, an infallible pope, to be able to understand scripture. You need the magisterium to interpret scripture. That God is in, in what he provided us in his word was insufficient. And that was what the Reformation was about. That's why we came out of this, uh, the Reformation with sola scriptura. And that's why the Catholic Church mocks the idea of sola scriptura. Well, today you have a new pope. You have a new pope called social justice, and he reigns as tyrannically as the pope does in, his, in, the, in the false doctrines of the Catholic Church. This is not the word of God. It is the fallible, empty deceits and philosophies of men. And it denies the sufficiency of the revealed word of God. The church needs to reject this and needs to do so resoundingly with one voice saying, no, we will not take these empty deceits and bring them into our church. That has to happen. 
My brother Rich is right. You need to go out and make disciples. That is what we are called for. We are not called to fight the battles of equality of power and wealth redistribution. We are called to make followers of Christ. So you go out there this week. You preach the gospel to someone. You share a gospel tract. You pray for someone for their salvation. You, you equip your brethren in the church to do likewise. But you study the word of God daily. And you pray that God open your heart and your mind to his word and equip you mightily. And then if you want to spend time reading, and I'm going to call it nonsense, you'll know the difference between the word of God and what is empty deceit. Folks, we thank you for spending time with us this week, uh, twice in one week, (laughs) really, and uh, we hope that this program is helpful to you. We hope that it has equipped you in some way. Now, I'm going to ask you, we we try to be careful about this, but you know, because it sounds like we're trying to beg for numbers, we're not. I'm going to ask you if this has been helpful to you to share it, because right now there's a lot of Christians out there who are caught up in this, and and they're being taken captive by these philosophies and empty deceits. Share it. Put it out there. Not because we're someone to listen to, but I hopefully we've made an argument that is biblical, that points you back to the Word of God and encourages Christians to do likewise. So we're going to ask you to do that. Support your pastors. Help them to remind, remember that they are there to equip the body of Christ as the under-shepherds of God. They're not there to be caught, bringing captive uh, with these empty, these empty arguments, these worthless arguments. Support them, pray for them, and be be there in your churches as an equipping member. That's what you're there for. If this program, if this podcast is helpful to you, consider sharing it. Uh, whatever podcast uh, mechanism that you use, whether it's Apple's uh, podcast uh, app, or uh, if you do go, if you go through our uh, our podcast host, which is um, Podbean, consider leaving a review. Like I said, leaving a review doesn't elevate us; it doesn't make us easier to find. I know some people think that that does that. That's not what happens. Uh, but by leaving a review, you help other people to make decisions about whether this is a program that's helpful to them. We've had some nice reviews uh, as of late. Um, you guys are really kind. We're not we're not looking for to get those. We just it helps other people to know whether they this is something worth their time. Uh, we did put this out not long ago. Uh, we we do have a uh, a Patreon account. If if you feel that this program is helpful to you, it helps others, and it's something you'd like to help support. You can go to slavetoking.com. The Patreon link is there. Okay, it's up to you if you want to do that. This is God's podcast he will equip it however he chooses but we want to make that available if that's something something that you think you can help with and just help us keep the this you know the the the, uh you know the podbean account open and keeping the website running great cool We, we we appreciate it we're not that's up to you that's between yes that's your decision we'll never push it we just want you to know it's there um again want to remind you we are part of christian podcast community please go check it out You're going to find a lot of good programs there. And uh, you'll always, always be blessed by the stuff that you listen to. Last thing I always want to remind you, be a part of a local church. Now, in in saying this, sometimes we get people that remind us, 
they're not capable because of their circumstances, illnesses, disabilities, etc. Totally, totally understand that. But if you are capable, be part of a local church. Be involved. Be there listening, being equipped, being fed, being strengthened, and then put to work those skills within your church. Help benefit others. Okay? Because we're going to need that in these days. We just talked about what's going on up in Canada, what's going on over in California. The local church is under attack. And it's only going to get worse. I can promise you that. Because Christ said, those that, you know, in his word, all that desire to live godly will face persecution. It's coming, folks. We need to be prepared for that. Equip your body. Be a, a practicing member if, so, if God has so equipped you to do so. If you can only be from home and you're being fed that way, try to at least be involved in communicating with your pastors, showing your support for them, praying for them. Letting them know, them know that you're there. And pastors, this is a topic we're going to have to talk about one of these days, but some of you pastors need to remember you have members of your congregations who can't be there because of disability. And I think it's a hard topic because we a lot of times we don't know what to do. We don't know how to deal with disability. You guys, you know, you guys need to start figuring that out because some of your congregants can't be there. And they need to still remember be included as being part of that church. You know, when we, when Rich and I say be part of a local church, we get the emails that remind us that some of us can't be. Please don't neglect those people. That is our we're begging you, don't forget they exist. Please, please, please make a way to make them part of your church. Find a way. It is that important. Pastor, they need you. They need to be part of it. They need to be included. They can't be left out anymore. Okay? So, thank you for being with us. And as my brother said, find someone to preach the gospel to this week. Find somebody you can share the gospel with. And whatever you do this week, do it for the glory of God. God bless you guys. Good night. We'll see you next time.